in our series that we've entitled God's Transforming Power. We're examining from Scripture, specifically the text in Galatians chapter 5, we're examining what it means, what it looks like to experience this extraordinary power that God promises us through His Holy Spirit. And so I would like to invite you to join me for this journey this morning as we look at the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, the text that we're reading, we read last week and we'll read it each week. And I'd like to challenge you and invite you to read Galatians 5, 16 to 25 every day. Uh, but uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there or your electronic devices. Uh, we also have it in the bulletin and we'll put it on the screen. And I just want to remind you what I try to remind you often and it's this, read your Bibles, right? Okay, it's a good word to hear. You need to hear that every week. Read your Bibles. There's extraordinary things that you'll find in there. And uh, this passage in Galatians is, is kind of like this beautiful flower that just kind of blossoms as you read through it. So uh, this is the Word of God for the people of God at Hope Covenant Church. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your own good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are to, under no obligation to the law of Moses. Next paragraph. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, in other words, when you uh, yield to, cede to, uh, surrender to the desires of your sinful nature, this is what happens, right? And then he lists a category of sins. And by the way, as I read these, if your sin's not in there, uh, just add it because it's one, of, it's one of them, you know, it's not just limited to these, right? Uh, so here's what he says. Uh, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are clear. This is the, what you yield, what you surrender to. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, Paul writes, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the stakes are high. And that's a very strong statement that he gives at the end of that. And then the next paragraph, he said, so, okay, that's the, that's the life of the, the life of the flesh, right? Sinful nature, the nature, the, the fleshly nature. Okay, now let me tell you about the spiritual nature. Let me tell you the contrast to that. When you fall, uh, but the Holy Spirit produces, and he uses this metaphor of a vine and, and fruit, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. So you can either have this kind of life, you know, where it's filled with all that stuff that we listed, that kind of life in the flesh, that kind of life when you press into your sin and say, this is what I believe, this is what I surrender to, or you can surrender to the Holy Spirit, and this is the kind of life Paul says you will have then. Your life will be filled with, teeming with, rife with these things. And then he lists them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
juxtapose, juxtapose those with what we read from the nature of the flesh. Nature of the spirit, nature of the flesh. And like we talked about last week, you can live in the upper half of the kingdom, which is a kingdom of grace and abundance, and God's giving you everything that you need to live a successful, holy life. Or you can live in the bottom half, the, the, the outhouse. You can live in, in condemnation and ungrace and all of those things. Basically, living in the flesh, living in the spirit, the choice is yours. God gave us a free will. The choice is yours. And so then uh, he goes on after that and says this. Those things... Uh, there is no law against these things, right? The, the, the gifts of the Spirit. Those who be- the fruit of the Spirit. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Now, Paul here is describing in exquisite detail how we can live by the Spirit. And once we live by the Spirit, God produces in us these qualities, these characteristics. He uses the metaphor of fruit, these ways of living a victorious life. And each week we'll examine one of those fruit of the Spirit. And the first one we're going to be looking at today is love. And so when we talk about these things, my prayer has been the last couple of weeks for each of us, and I've prayed specifically for many of you, my prayer is that this word will be received by you and that you will allow the Holy Spirit to do this transforming work in your life. And I promise you, because God has promised us that if we surrender, seed, yield to Him, He will give us the dream of our lives living this kind of life in this world. So, because we know these these forces are constantly fighting. So, fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. We're going to start with the first one and that's love. So I want to start with a passage from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses, verse 23. I'll read verse 23, we'll talk about it, and then we'll come back and look at verses 22 and 23 together. So this is Peter writing 1 Peter 1, 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. So we're trying to identify what does this look like to live by the Spirit? Well, this passage is the one that I think that really kind of hones in on it and specifically tells you what it means to live by the Spirit. So what Peter's saying here is that um, uh, we have, this is the essence of the gospel, that we have the seed, and I don't want to be indelicate here, but the word is spermata. We have the seed of God, the Holy Spirit, placed within us by faith, okay? That's how faith connects to that that seed that God wants to plant in our lives. That seed takes root in us, is born in us, right? And takes root in us. That seed grows in us and bears fruit in us. And that seed that grows in us, that seed that is born in us and grows in us and takes root in us and grows in us will also extend to growing outside of us. So all of this is happening. Now you've heard the phrase, if you've been around church in the gospel uh, a while, you've heard the phrase born again, uh, born anew. That's what this phrase is. Uh, Born by the Spirit of God. It's talking about, again, this juxtaposition between life in the flesh and life in the Spirit. Life in the flesh doesn't have the Spirit of God alive in them. Life in the Spirit 
does. This seed is planted in you by faith. It grows in you, bears fruit, and then that fruit comes out of you and the world sees that fruit. And the thing that the world sees most often or the thing that the world should see most often is the very first fruit of the Spirit, which is love. If they see anything else first, we're not listening to the gospel. If they see anything else first, we're not obeying the words of Jesus' commands. So here's Jesus. Now, Paul wrote this uh, 25 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. But uh, here, uh, Jesus was talking to his disciples. They were getting ready to uh, be sent off because Christ was going to be ascended into heaven. Uh, this is 40 days, or this is some days after the resurrection, before he's ascended. But he's getting the disciples ready. Okay, here's what I want you to do when I'm gone. Here's what I want you to focus on. Here's what I want you to be about. This is who you are. And so he gives them this passage in John 15. Say, oh, I'm sorry. I wanted to first give you that passage in 1 Peter again. Um, because we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit is love. Let me give you that passage in 1 Peter, verse 22. Now you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. Then, he goes on, verse 23, for or because you have been born again, because that has been planted in you, right? Not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. God says that thing that is born in you, the first thing that is seen that comes out of you is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So as I said, Jesus was talking to his disciples, getting them fired up and ready to do this thing we call the church and to make disciples. They were called to that. And this is what he says in John 15, 16. Now remember, he's giving them their marching orders. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit, okay? Produce lasting fruit is the same phrase. It's not exactly the same phrase, but it means the same thing as making disciples, okay? I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit, make disciples, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. In, using my name. This is my command, love each other. So he wanted the disciples, the apostles, the Christ followers of that first, you know, uh, three years of Jesus' ministry, he wanted them to be clear about how they were supposed to deliver the gospel. You deliver the gospel one way and one way only, and that's through love. You don't deliver it like that. You don't deliver it with condemnation. You don't deliver it with you should, you ought. You deliver it with love. Jesus said, you are my A-team, he said to the apostles. He would say that to us today. He said, you're my, you're my plan A. I don't have a plan B. My plan A is for you, those of you who have had the Spirit of God given birth in you and now is alive in you, the Spirit of God, and fruit is coming out of you, you are to go and make disciples. You are to go and bear fruit. That's your job, your plan A. I don't have a plan B. That's the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to today. So um, that, that, was, that was the beginning of all of this. And then the, 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 the people that Jesus ran into the, and had the most trouble with were the people called the Pharisees. And these were religious leaders, the educated of the day, very religious. And um, uh, they were always trying to trip up Jesus because he was giving them kind of this new gospel. Well, not kind of, this new gospel that people are saying, wow. You mean, I can live by grace? I can live by faith? I mean, I don't have to live by the to-do list and the checklist? And so the Pharisees were feeling a little bit like they were losing some of their leverage, right? So, so here's Jesus comes along and says, um, this is what we're going to do. We're going to love everybody. And then the Pharisees came along and said, well, I'm going to trick Jesus at this point. I'm going to trick him into uh, saying the wrong thing. 
And so here's what they asked him. He said, um, what is the greatest and most important law? Now, when they asked this question, they had certain things in mind. Uh, the greatest and most important law, they thought he was going to say, of course, Exodus 20, uh, the Ten Commandments. The Big Ten, right? The Big Ten. Now, the, the um, religious people over the years took those Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, and out of that, they made 613 laws. Okay, so now 10 has turned into 613. And then out of the 613 laws, there was a, 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 a book called the Midrash, and that uh, took those 613, and it made thousands of other laws to explain those laws. So you see where we're going here. We're getting in a lot of trouble. We start with 10 commandments. Now we've got tens of thousands of laws, you know, about how much, um, uh, how far you can walk on the Sabbath and stuff like that. Just ridiculous stuff. And so they said, okay, which one of the laws is going to pick out and say, this is the most important? Say, we, we're going to trick him on this. And here's what Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said this last phrase, listen very carefully, there is no commandment greater than these. And then I think Jesus might have asked something like this, to all of his followers, disciples, apostles, Christ followers, is there any way, friends, is there any way this is ambiguous? <laughs> the first thing you do, the first response, the default position is always love. Yeah, the other commandments are good, and the other commandments are made for good. Sometimes we see the commandments as things to uh, help us not have fun, but that's exactly the opposite. The commandments were given to people to keep us from hurting ourselves and hurting other, other people. Okay, that's why they were given. So Jesus is the first and most important thing you can always remember is these two things, these two simple rules. Love God with everything you have and love people the same way. What people? Well, I want you, first of all, you love yourself. I want you to love the church, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then here's the tricky part. I want you to love the world with that same kind of love. You mean, what do you mean the world? Well, those people that are outside of Christ. You mean pagans? Yes, pagans. You mean, you mean gay people? Yes, gay people. Uh, you, you mean uh, pr uh, pr promiscuous people? Yes, I mean promiscuous. You mean adulterers? Yes, adulterers. You, you mean drug users? I mean, yeah, all the people, okay? Muslims, everybody out there, love them the same way. So this was transformational. This was unbelievable. Everybody was so locked into keeping the commandments and saying, okay, I did this, I did this, I did this. They forgot the two most important things that everything else hung on. Love God, love people. You get those two right, and the rest of the stuff kind of falls into place. And so, so that's what Jesus talked about, this idea of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And that's the first and greatest commandment. Second is love your neighbor as yourself. And then uh, 25 years later, Paul writes, and he confirms what Jesus said. And then 40 years after Christ, Peter uh, excuse me, John wrote in 1 John and confirmed what Jesus said about love. And here's what Paul said in Romans 13. The commandments, again, nothing wrong with the commandments. The only problem is we can't keep them, right? The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, do you understand what I'm saying? 
Why is it that for 10,000 years the Jews had made this long list of rules to follow, checklists to have, and Jesus comes back and clarifies everything? He doesn't change anything. He clarifies everything. He says, you've missed the point. It's not about, it's not behave on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you've missed the point. Everything is about loving God and loving other people. You do that and all of your doctrine and your laws and your theology, they'll fall into place. Nothing wrong with doctrine and theology. I love it. I'm a student of the scriptures. I love that. But God says, don't forget, the first stop, the default position always goes back to this. Love God and love people. Everything hangs on these two laws. Everything else flows from and is subservient to love God, love people. Every teaching, every sermon, every, well, yeah, but what about this? Every, well, what about this sex thing? Or what about this marriage thing, this race thing, this war thing, this, uh, all these things. What about all those? All of those start with default position, love God, love people. Everything else comes after. Now, for some of you, this may almost sound um, controversial, um, but the problem is, the reason it sounds controversial is because we've gotten away from Jesus' teaching. We've gotten away from what he said over and over and over again. All these things are good, laws are good, commandments are good, everything's good. But don't forget the thing that st- happens first, the default position, is love God and love people. Everything else flows from that. What we've done so often is we've made our doctrine, our vision, or our f- beliefs to be the thing. And then say, well, then maybe somewhere down here we'll love somebody. But really, we're going to hammer them with what we believe because they're bad and they misbehave and they're, they're an adulterous world and they're you know, breaking laws and they're living different lives and they have different views and values and everything. And so we're constantly saying, well, yeah, because you don't fit our laws. No, Jesus said, all that comes later. Right now, you only got to remember one thing. Love God. Love those people. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. Don't point to the kid that had his pants below his, his underwear and say, well, that kid is a bad kid. Or, oh, I don't like that. Or that person has too many tattoos or too much metal or whatever else. You know, we're always looking and trying to value somebody based on the way they look. Jesus said, don't do any of that. Don't do any of that. Stop right there. Don't do any of that. We have a, a guy who used to be in our church named Todd, Todd Thompson. And one time he was working at uh, Chase Field. It used to be Bank One Ballpark. And he was selling goods, and it was around the World Series uh, win of the, uh, you know, if you remember that far back, the Diamondbacks, night 2001. And so the, everybody was in there buying stuff, hats and T-shirts, and it was crowded, and people were angry and shouting and yelling, and a couple people got in a fight, and Todd's trying to sell this stuff, and it's a chaos. And there's a girl about three rows back, and he sees her, and she's got blue hair, and she's got metal on her head, and she's got tattoos and the goth outfit and the whole thing and he thinks it was oh great you know I got to deal with this right so he's kind of judging her and, and finally she gets up the counter she said she said you know what sir I just want to tell you that you're handling this really well I, I know it's a chaos in here and it's a mess everybody wants to buy stuff I, I know it's not your fault and she said I just want you to know I'll be praying for you isn't that awesome isn't that awesome yeah, too many. Yeah, we, we think we're the ones that are. You know, you know. No, 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 no. Don't judge somebody because of their sexual orientation, because of the way they look, because of the way they talk. Love them, love them until they ask you why. See, that's the deal. 
We have, this, the big idea is that, 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 that we have to learn how to treat people, out, especially outsiders and enemies, like Jesus did. The only ones Jesus had a problem with were the Pharisees. The, the sinners, he, 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 he loved to be with them. I mean, he loved to be because he could tell them the good news. And say, the woman taken in adultery, he didn't say one word, unkind or a hard word towards her. Everything was soft and grace-filled because he knew this woman didn't have any options. And he said, you know what? I don't come, you're, you're, the people that have condemned you are no longer here. I don't condemn you. You know, don't live this life anymore. You've been, you're better than this, you know. Let's find a, a way for you to live your life well. And, and so there was never this sense of, oh, shame or condemnation. It was always about love. You know, we forget sometimes that um, in 1 Corinthians that Paul reminds us that it's not our job to judge the world. It's our, job, it's our job to judge each other, to hold each other accountable in the body of Christ. You see somebody that's having an affair, you come alongside and say, that, that's not going to work. You, you either stop that or I'm going to go talk to your wife. I mean, that's what you do if you love somebody. But the world, the world is the world. They're broken. They're sinful. Of course they're living different ways of living. Of course they're doing all of that. They're the world. We're not supposed to judge them. We're supposed to love them. That's what Jesus said, and that's what Jesus did. Here, here's the problem. Some of you grew up like I did, and uh, you grew up in, a, in an atmosphere where everything was about what you knew. Okay, how much of the Bible do you know? How much doctrine do you know? How much theology do you know? Everything was about that. And there was so much emphasis on the commands that we forgot the heart of the commander. We forgot that it's about, we deliver this with love. We deliver this with, with, with a, a pure heart. We deliver this with the idea that I will do everything in my power to love you so that down the road somewhere you may say, Dwayne, why? Why are you loving me? Well, because Jesus loved me like this. I'm no different than you. I'm a sinner. But Jesus saved me, and that same invitation is yours as well. We need to stop judging people and start loving people, especially those who are outside the family of God. We need the heart of the commander. We need to have that, to embrace that, to be that. This has to be our primary, our first response. And here's the question we need to all learn to ask, and it's this. What does love require of me? What does love require of me in my home, at my job, in my church? What does love require of me on the softball field? What does love require of me uh, at the gym where I work out, where I shop, where I eat dinner? What does love require of me? What does love require of me with my Muslim neighbors or my gay friends or people that are living a life so far from my life it doesn't even, it's not even recognizable? What does love require of that situation? If you are a Jesus follower, and I think most of us are, I'm wondering if you're willing to ask this question and step into the reality of what that question means. What does love require of me? Now, for the next few minutes, I want to show you how extraordinarily brilliant Jesus' teaching was on this. Jesus' love. We always talk about Jesus' love, but then we go on and talk about all the other stuff, right? But Jesus' love was always that first and last, the, the, the primary and the default position, always the way he did ministry, the way he did life. It was always about love. So his teaching was absolutely brilliant on this. So let me remind you that the early disciples, for the first 300 years, um, uh, the disciples had nothing except the gospel. 
Uh, they had no political leverage, you know that. They had no financial leverage. They had nothing. They had no church buildings. They had no, uh, in nothing. They had, all they had was the gospel and their only way of delivering that gospel was love. Okay, that was their only delivery system. Things changed in the fourth century when the church started getting organized and started saying, well, you've got to believe this or you're out of the, you're out of the club. Okay, when, as soon as things became, you've got to believe this instead of you've got to understand what love means, everything falls apart. And then we had what we called a, a little thing for a thousand years that we called the dark ages. And that was because the world was darkened to the light of Jesus' love, right? So, so we have to figure out how to get back to that first 300 years. So Jesus is talking to his, uh, 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 his Christ followers. He's talking to those people. He said, now you people are the ones that live for the gospel. You love people. Uh, you even die for the gospel. You're going to be transformed by the power of God. And his teaching around love looks something like this. Now this is kind of uh, a personal uh, anecdote, a personal story, but I think you'll relate to it. Um, there are two categories of people that have made you who you are today. Um, whether you're a father, wife, a student, an employee, a friend, there are two categories of people that have made you who you are today. Those two categories of, pe two categories of people did not primarily influence you because of their beliefs or because they were a Christian or religious or they went to church, those two categories of people were not people whether or not they had good doctrine or bad doctrine, whether they believed or they didn't believe. The two categories of people that have influenced your life are these two categories. Number one, those people who hurt you. And number two, those people who loved you. Those are the people who have influenced your lives. We've had many people in our church that have been, especially women, who when they were younger, they experienced abuse of some form. And we have many the soul that we do in our church. We have Ava. We have different ministries to help. And what I've discovered over the last uh, 10, 15 years is the depth at which a human being can hurt another human being and the effect that that has on a person's life. I'll give you an example. Um, we lived in San Diego. That was where I served my first church. And we bought a little house. Our first time we bought a house in 1979. And we moved in next door to this single mom and her son, Christopher. And Christopher was the same age as our youngest, Tyler. And they became buddies. They were both uh, preschoolers, three or four years old. And of course, uh, I, I served the church just down the block. So when we got to know Carolyn, we invited her to church. And she said, thanks, but no thanks. But we got to be friends with her, and she was a, a delightful woman. And uh, pretty soon, uh, when you get to know somebody, you start asking more personal questions. Well, what happened to Christopher's father? And she said, well, we were divorced. And, and well, we'd really love you to come to church. Well, she said, I don't really have anything against church. She said, I, I do follow Christ. She said, I don't have anything against church. I said, well, then what's the problem? She says, I have, some, I have a problem with pastors. I said, oh, well, that's nice, you know. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to fix that, you know, real easily. But, um, uh, and then she told me her story. Uh, she was raised um, as a missionary's kid, an MK. And her father was very um, big in the missionary, in their denomination. I won't mention the denomination or his name because those of you uh, that are old enough would remember his name. Um, he was very big in, in, in this missionary uh, denomination and uh, very big uh, when she was a little bit older uh, he was the president of the whole missionary organization. And, um, and so Carolyn told us the story. She said, yeah, he was, uh, 
you know, had all of these accolades and he was a brilliant man and he all of that. But what everybody didn't know was that from the time I can remember until I left for college at age 17, my father sexually abused both me and my sister ritually and uh, this happened over a period of my entire life. Now this man had rock solid doctrine. He had the best theology. He knew the Bible. He could quote the Bible. He could tell you where you sin and he was very good at telling people where they've sinned against God and he knew all of that stuff. He all of it. But you know what? His rock solid doctrine, his good theology, his teachings, his understanding about the Bible, all that didn't do one thing to influence Carolyn. But what he did in hurting her influenced her immensely. Now the opposite of that is true as well. I know a lot of people who have been greatly influenced by a parent, a grandparent, a, a grandmother, a coach, a teacher, someone in their life who has poured love into them. And they may not have had the best doctrine or the best theology either, but they poured love into them. And it was solid and it was beautiful and it was life-giving and their life was altered. Now some of you have experienced both of those. You have been both hurt and you have been loved well. This was the essence of Jesus' teaching. I, Jesus would say, I'm glad that you believe the right things. I'm glad you have good doctrine, but that's not the key. The key is, do you love the way that I loved? Do you love people the way that I loved people? Do you pour in that love that comes deep from your soul into other people because you've received that from Jesus Christ? You felt something in your soul when you were loved well. You live your lives today, all of us do, by doses of those two things. People who have hurt us and people who have loved us well. And the way you have been treated has far more to do with who you are today than what people believed around you. This is why Jesus' words are so extraordinarily profound. This is why we must get this, brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to get this reality. This is our best play. This is our greatest leverage. This is our greatest opportunity, and that is to love profoundly. There was a shift in those first 300 years. It went away from delivering the gospel with love to who's right and who's wrong. If we would simply do what Jesus said instead of arguing about what he said, the world would change. Now listen, I'm, I'm a student of the Bible. I love God's Word. I love the Bible. It's in me. But if I didn't have the love of Jesus and if I didn't present that Bible with the love of Jesus, it would be empty. The reputation of Christ followers would change. Why do you think the world thinks we're ridiculous? Because they simply look back and say, yeah, well, look at the Crusades. Yeah, look at what happened at the, at the abortion clinic where they burned it down. Yeah, look at these idiots over here. Look what they're doing over there. We have done everything we should have except love God with all our heart and love people as Jesus did. Jesus said it this way, a new commandment I give you, love one another. He didn't say a new commandment I give you, believe correctly, or a new commandment I give you, have the correct doctrine. I mean, think about it. If you're a student of history like I am, do you know how much time the church has spent in arguing about what Jesus meant about what he said? Why don't we just do what he said? 
Why don't we just live it? I remember uh, Brad Kendall was our first worship pastor when we were in the strip mall. And Brad and I sat down one day and we talked about what kind of, how do we want to lead this small group of people at, uh, by Florodino's Pizza? How do we want to lead this group of people? What kind of a church do we want to be? Here's, and I don't, I don't know that I've ever given him credit for this out loud because I usually like to take credit for myself. But he said, he said why don't we just be a church's, church that looks like Jesus? I said, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know, how can you go wrong with that? And really, we've been living that out for the next 13 years. Why don't we just be a church that looks like Jesus? This theology of Jesus, of loving God and loving people, is so brilliant when you recognize that, again, most of us have not been affected hardly at all by what people believe, but we've been affected by whether they've loved us or they've hurt us. That's what Jesus was saying. That's the case with the world. That's the case with people outside the body of Christ. Jesus, and, and now here's a question I think is really good. Jesus knew the heart of men and women. Uh, so have you ever asked the question, I wonder why um, Jesus treated one guy this way and another guy that way? Have you ever wondered that? I have. So he comes to the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler says, what do I need to do to get to heaven? Okay, what do I need to do to get to the kingdom of God? And Jesus looked at his heart and he said this. He said, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and sell all of your stuff. You mean, you mean my chariot too? Yeah, yeah. Go and sell all of your stuff. All of my stuff? Yeah, all of your stuff. Go and sell all of your stuff. Give the money to the poor and then come and follow me. And then another rich young ruler, another rich man came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, I need to be saved. And here's what Jesus said to him. He said, you're this close to the kingdom. This close. All you have to do is believe. Just take that one. He didn't say anything to him about his money. He didn't say anything to him about his riches. He just, you're this close. You just need to believe. Now, why these two different people, why did Jesus treat them differently? It seems inconsistent, doesn't it? It seems almost unfair. No, Jesus knew the heart of people. He saw right to their heart. He was fierce with one group, compassionate with another, but he knew their heart. So how do we relate to that? Why not do the same? Why not before we judge somebody, well, look at the way they look, or my neighbors over here, they're living in sin, or these neighbors over here, they're Muslims and we have to stay away. And Why not instead of all of those things where we put people in a them category, where we put the people in a bad category, why don't we do what Jesus did and get to know their story? That's what Jesus did. He knew the story of the, of the rich young ruler. He knew the story of the other rich young ruler. He knew the story of the woman taken in adultery. He knew the story of the Pharisees. He knew their story, and that's how he acted according to, their, to, to who they were. Instead of judging somebody for what they look like or what they should be like or how they should live, why don't we just know their story? What does love require of me? What does love require of you? It means to get your, to know your neighbor's story, to find out who they are instead of, you know, hunkering down in your house and saying, oh, I hope, you know, sinful people don't come knocking on my door. Are you kidding? Go and knock on their doors. What does love require of me? Now, I, I just want to, as we close, I want to clarify this truth by just sharing three simple statements with you that kind of clarifies this Jesus kind of love. And believe me, this Jesus kind of love, it sounds so easy, but it's so extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult in our world because we have been living our lives based on doctrine 
rather than the love of Jesus, okay? We've got to fix that. Three step statements to clar clarify this truth. Number one, don't do anything that will hurt you. Number two, don't do anything that will hurt someone else. Number three, don't be mastered by anything. Okay, well, what does that mean, Pastor Duane? Well, here's the first thing. Don't do anything that will hurt you. Why? Because you can't do anything that hurts you that doesn't hurt Jesus. You can't do anything that hurts you that doesn't hurt Jesus. I mean, all of the decisions that I make, my parental decisions, my husband decisions, every moral, ethical, sexual, professional, relational decision that hurts me hurts Jesus, hurts my wife, hurts my kids, my grandkids, hurts my church, hurts my friends. It hurts you. Let me say it a different way. When you hurt you, you hurt the one and the ones that you love the most. Don't hurt you. The second thing is this. Don't do anything that will hurt someone else. I will not do or say anything that will hurt another person. See, when you get to know somebody's story, when you know the story of that, that girl that was in goth clothing, when you get to know her story and you get to know, say, what, a, what an amazing, beautiful human being she is. Instead of somehow judging her based on how she looks or how she acts. What a beautiful person. God loves you. We get to know their story. Don't do anything that will hurt someone else. And the third thing is this. Do not be mastered by anything. You have to ask the question, why? Because whenever you are mastered by something, it keeps you from loving someone. Again, I'll say it a different way. No one should have to compete with your alcoholism. No one should have to compete with your pornography. No one should have to compete with your gambling, your prescription drugs, your anger, your self-righteousness. No one should have to compete with that. When you hurt somebody else, every time you hurt Jesus, refuse to be mastered because God alone is your master. A couple weeks ago, uh, a young man came to see me and he said, uh, Pastor Dwayne, he said, I'm struggling with an issue. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, pornography. And I said, well, you know, there's, I, I know a lot of people, especially men in our church that, that are struggling with that same thing. How can I help you? He says, well, I, I've decided that it's really not that bad. I said, oh, well, why is that? He said, well, because it only, it only hurts me. And so I shared with him some of my thoughts around this, that when you hurt me, you hurt Jesus who lives in you. And you hurt the ones who love you. But I said, beyond that, have you ever thought about the way your wife feels about it? Oh, she doesn't know about it. Well, why don't you let her know if there's nothing wrong with it? Well, because she would feel devalued. That's true, yeah. And because she would feel less than. Well, that's true as well. And I said, have you ever thought about what you're doing to your own soul? When the Bible says that we are supposed, as men, we are supposed to save our eyes for our wives. Literally save our eyes for our In other words, use our eyes, because men are very, very visual, use our eyes for our wives. That's where we see beauty. That's where we see this amazing, beautiful thing that God created. Okay? That's what we're supposed to do. How can you do that when, when you're looking at these images that aren't even real? How can you do that? And so as we talked, we recognized that, oh man, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. Here's what Jesus was getting at. When the church leverages anything other than love, we lose. When the church leverages anything 
other than love, we lose. We have lost it in our culture. Our culture thinks we're narrow-minded, homophobic idiots. When the church leverages anything other than love, when we leverage politics, when we leverage money or denominationalism, when we leverage anything other than love, we lose. Once upon a time, there was a handful of Christ followers who the only thing they had in their possession was the gospel. And the only means they had of delivering that gospel was love. And when they did, they recognized that they were able to literally change the world. For 300 years, they did. When you see the growth of the church for those first 300 years, it was amazing. It's when religion and politics gets mixed up in Christianity, everything went crazy. But when they had love and they delivered, they had no TV preachers, and you probably wish you didn't either. And they had no, you know, four spiritual laws, and they had none of these things that we have today, but they had the gospel and they had the delivery system that we call love. Simply stated, Jesus said, love God and love others. So I kind of have this weird vision, and uh, Sherry will tell you that I'm weird when it comes to these kind of things. Um, I have this picture of um, people in the world that we try and attach to, we try and get them, get to know them through having things like jazz and chocolate and Easter at Tumbleweed Park. We try to connect with them. We go and serve the community in Chandler. We do all these things. We try to connect with our community. So I have a vision that these people who have interacted with you at a project or a service or something like that, these people will get to know you. And they will be so overwhelmed by your love. They'll be so overwhelmed by your lack of judgmentalism and condemnation. They will be so overwhelmed that you care about them, even if you disagree with their lifestyle. They will be so overwhelmed that they can't wait to peek into this body of Christ and say, I don't understand anything about Jesus or God or the Bible, but I want what that guy has. I want what that student has. I want what that woman has. I want that. Because I see the way they treat their husbands and their wives. I see how generous they are. I see how they treat other people. I see how they treat strangers and people of different religions and different sexual orientations. I see how they treat them. And I don't understand a lot about Christianity and religion, but I want that. I want that for me. You see, when we are so filled with Jesus' love, people are drawn to that attraction. They are drawn to the edge and saying, okay, I want that. When they see that and they see how they love one another, that to me is absolutely irresistible. How can people not want that kind of life? What does love require of me? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we um, come to the uh, time in our service when we simply open our hearts to you. Lord, so many of us have, um, I can't tell you, Lord, and I, I, I confess this once again, I can't tell you how many times I've beat somebody over the head with my Bible, figuratively. And I don't know that any one of them has ever come to know you as a result. But the people that I have loved well through the power of the Holy Spirit, the people who have seen the love of Jesus in my heart, in my life, in my family, those are the ones who peek over the edge and say, I don't have all the answers, but I want that. I want that. Father, may we confess 
how we have used our religion to keep people away from us. And may we profess, Lord, that we want to be available to be in their lives, to love them, to love them well, to love God, to love people as you did. And by doing that, the church becomes, I believe with all my heart, irresistible. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.